Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 119, recorded May 12, 2011. Z68, baby, it's not a Camaro. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch. And be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20%. Welcome to Twitch This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton, joined as always by the man, the myth, the benchmarking, and Z68 chipset obsessed, Ryan Shrout. Well, I don't know if I'm obsessed, but it seems uh, the hardware world is, at least for <laughs> this week, since it's finally been released. I mean, the chipset that we've talked about for what seems like ever, but yeah. Well, let's, you know, you, you said you talked about it on the PC Per podcast for 40 minutes last night. I got to say, yeah. the thing that sticks with me the most about the Z68 chipset, I'm not sure if it's going to be the sort of relationship between discrete graphics and onboard graphics or the SSD caching. I mean, what, what do you think? What's the top thing about Z68 for people buying a new system with the Sandy Bridge? Uh, the top I think is going to be the combination of, uh, integrated and discrete graphics still. I think SSD caching is cool, but I think, you know, that was kind of like a surprise bonus for the Z68 chipset. We, what we really wanted out of it was the ability to use, uh, the integrated graphics performance features like quick sync, uh, and I guess Intel insider, which is their kind of DRM management for future, movie title releases and all that kind of stuff. Um, Intel goes hand in hand with Hollywood to make it impossible to enjoy movies without paying a ridiculous amount of money every time you want to watch the movie. Right. Not that I don't trust Hollywood. <laughs> no, and why why wouldn't you? Um, but, the, you know, Z, what, what Z68 brings to the table in that front is, is what's really cool is the ability to run a discrete graphics card. So, you know, you'll be able to put in a Radeon HD 5000, 6000, any NVIDIA graphics card you want. You know, something that's higher performance, meant for gaming. Uh, you know, you can do all the stuff you could do. Ifinity Gaming, uh, NVIDIA Surround, 3D Vision, SLI, Crossfire, all that kind of stuff, all those goodies. Uh, but still be able to take advantage of QuickSync, which was one of the coolest features of the Intel Sandy Bridge processor when it launched back in January. Um, right. But as we have talked about basically since, the problem was as soon as you plugged in a discrete graphics card into your motherboard, you lost all of that technology and all that advantage that the Sandy Bridge architecture gave you. So I think right. that combination is probably the coolest part about Z68. And as as kind of like I don't want to veer off too quickly, but it's it's kind of weird because so that I I still believe that's the case. Here is a, a gigabyte Z68 motherboard we just got in a couple of days ago. Uh, it wasn't listed. We haven't posted a review of it yet or anything. This is Z68X UD5B3. And what's interesting about this is even though we just talked about how awesome it is that now Z68 combines discrete and integrated graphics, what you'll see here when you look at the display or the output configuration, you'll notice that there are no display outputs. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, and as it stands today, there would be technically no way to utilize the QuickSync technology on this motherboard with the discrete graphics card. There is hmm. apparently going to be a way to do that in the future. But it, to me, it's kind of one of those things that's like, well, that kind of defeats in my vision and I think a lot of people's vision what the main feature of Z68 was. Um, also, I guess I'll mention on that switchable graphics thing, uh, without any other software, third-party software at all, you can, if you have integrated graphics output mm -hmm. on your motherboard and you have a discrete graphics output, you can manually move your monitor connection, like your DVI cable, between your discrete card when you want to do gaming, right. reboot, uh, and plug it into the motherboard when you want to do video transcoding. Right, And that's kind of dumb. Yeah, well, so you actually let, let me let me repeat this back to you to make sure I've got it right. If I want to use the amazing Intel encoding speed stuff, 
I mm-hmm. have to switch from my discrete graphics to the onboard graphics by switching the cable. Uh, if you want to do that, yes, that is correct. If you want to do that okay. without any kind of third-party software. In other words, had, ah. had Intel not been surprised or glad to see or whatever the Lucid Virtue software that we've talked about since CES, where they demonstrated the ability for a piece of software to uh, send commands to one GPU that it deems most uh, appropriate for that workload and to the other GPU when it deems appropriate for that. Um, That's how you would have to do it. But because of Lucid Virtue software that allows you to have your DVI cable plugged into either the discrete or the integrated graphics, and then you have that functionality without rebooting, without any kind of configuration issues and that type of stuff. And uh, in my use case with the ASUS motherboard that we used for our Z68 launch testing, uh, the Mm -hmm. the 1.0 release of Virtue was actually pretty stable, pretty reliable, uh, and worked worked really well. So Hmm. it's kind of what's interesting to me about that is Intel has no software solution for this themselves. It's kind of odd. Uh, I I commented that in my review that it seems kind of like they didn't really think it all the way through. It's not like Intel to really depend on third party companies, especially one as small as Lucid to, you know, complete the feature set of their of their chipset and platform, you know, usually you would expect mm-hmm. Intel to to really have their own option. Maybe not necessarily the best, but their own option um, for that. Other than, hey, move your DVI cable uh, when you reboot your computer. Mm-hmm. So, regardless, the software is there and it seems to work. And Nvidia is going to have their own version of it called Synergy, probably in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, but. That, that, I think, is, is a cool feature of Z68 that you could not do on P67 motherboards at all. So that's pretty cool. Now, did you talked about the SSD caching at all stuff uh, on Techzilla or anything? Just barely started touching on Z68. I'm actually kind of hoping to do a build around it to to kind of show off some of the, the different elements. Because um, it, it seems like, you know, I was... We, we had a bunch of people who were like, I'm thinking about building this system. And I'm like, you might want to wait until the Z68 chipsets are out <laughs> just, you know, because obviously like A, you know, new features and B, hey, you know, new chipset comes out, older chipset, you know, pushes the prices down, pushes down the prices on older chipsets. Right. Um, I'd also like to take a moment to apologize uh, to everyone in the chat room for my squeaking. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. Perhaps my braces have finally snapped, but uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> and the uh, the uh, microphone oil is stored next to the muffler bearings. I want to make sure everybody knows that. The uh, you know at this point, I'm kind of curious. I'm really curious, given the way like 64-bit Windows 7 is caching so much data directly in system memory, especially if you've got a ridiculous amount of system memory, like 12 gigabytes or more, you know, how much performance benefit you can actually get out of the SSD caching. Well, the the SSD caching feature, what Intel is calling the smart response Mm -hmm. technology, supports SSDs up to 64 gigabytes. Um, So with that 64 gigabytes, it, it has the potential to cache 64 gigs of data from your hard drive onto your SSD. Um, as for having 12 gigs of memory, yeah, I guess in theory um, that would work. That won't help your boot times. That won't help necessarily uh, game loading times or anytime you actually like close an application and Windows deems that it's done with that data and it kind of flushes out of flushes it out of memory, then you're back to accessing it through your standard traditional hard drive. With the SRT, with smart response technology, um, you know, a user gets to combine a standard spindle-based hard drive of any capacity, you know, one terabyte, two terabytes, even the three terabyte drives, with basically any solid-state drive you want to uh, and create your own kind of custom hybrid uh, storage solution. It's actually pretty cool. Um, like I said, it uses up. It will use up to 64 gigs. So if you, uh, you know, have a 100 gig SSD kind of laying around, I don't know many people that have that, but if you happen to have one already, you can use that, but keep in mind that you will be, you know, not taking advantage of anything over that 64 gigabyte limit. Um, and it will go as small as, you know, 12 gigs, 18 gigs, 16 gigs, whatever they sell. But when Intel released in conjunction with the C68 platform and the SSD caching technology is Larson Creek SSD, which is a, a standard two and a half inch SSD form factor or uh, an MSATA, a microSATA chip card, whatever you want to call it, um, SLC 20 gigabyte 
option. And what's interesting about that is 20 gigs is kind of the right size kind of capacity that you would need to, to really utilize caching on, on a system like this. And it's SLC, which means you don't have to worry about uh, the life of the flash memory like you kind of like a lot of people do with MLC memory. Now, we were talking with Alan last night, who's our storage guy, and he's still not really worried about MLC if you happen to use an MLC drive as a cache. But the fact that the Larson Creek solid state drives that Intel just released are SLC kind of negates that argument altogether. Um, because basically, if you are, you know, if you're talking about 20 gig SSD, you've got two terabytes worth of data or more, um, then you know, it's, it's it's very possible for that 20 gigs to cycle pretty frequently. So, you you know, ha having the SLC memory versus the MLC memory is just a plus there. I don't know if I necessarily call it requirement. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but, the, but the SSD caching works well and the performance is, is impressive. Um, it's one of those things, it's things that you wouldn't necessarily think of that make sense, such as you go into the BIOS, you enable this feature, you connect these two drives, it comes up as one single drive letter in Windows. Um, the first time you enable it and boot up, obviously your boot time is going to take the full whatever it is. I think in Alan's testing, we, we did a fresh installs like 45 seconds of boot time. As soon as wow. you enable it the first time, it takes 45 seconds. Fine. The second time you reboot, now it's down to 25 seconds. And the reason after the first reboot is because it had to cache all of the stuff the first time. So the first time you launch any application, it's going to run at hard drive speed. The first time you run, uh, you know, you start up Photoshop or something like that, it's going to run at hard drive speed because it has to read it from the hard drive. It loads it into memory and it's also loading it into the cache of the SSD. Now, if you close it and reopen it again, then you get the SSD speed. So it's really going to affect your frequently used applications, um, any, any data that you're frequently accessing. And then, you know, a, as is the case, the reason why this isn't a perfect solution still is that as soon as you kind of are using more than that 20 gig or 40 gig or whatever your SSD is, uh, SSD capacity is, then you kind of, you're, you're hit or miss there, right? Is if, if something right. got cleared out of your 20 gig SSD, it's going to take the full hard drive length time to open <laughs> up that application. Um, but I think 20 gigs is a good amount of storage when you think of what you're actually using on an everyday basis frequently. Um, and that's where I think you'll see the biggest benefit. So Gigabyte, any reason in particular they were the first vendor with a Z68 motherboard out? Are, are they actually hitting the, the street before Intel Z68 motherboards, or are they just the most notable no, they're, release? They're not, the, they're not the first Z68 out. The story that I linked here in the show notes <laughs> is about the first with a micro SATA Ah. SLC SSD slot on the full size ATX motherboard. So, you know, there, there's there's a an MSATA port on here that you can then buy that Intel uh, Larson Creek SSD or any other micro SSD uh, MSATA SSD and install mm -hmm. it on there. And then you don't even have to worry about having a two and a half inch SSD in your system. It just shows up and and you can enable it with the cache with the you know your standard spindle based hard drive. It's just one of those kind of cool integration options, I guess. And suddenly I wanted to rebuild my Core i7 system and upgrade it. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, who'd have thought it has nothing to do with <laughs> CPU performance, right? It's just neat little tricks like this that are, 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 are pretty cool to see. Um, and, and this is one of those things where you wonder, if, is AMD going to try to do something yeah. like this? I mean, they have reasonable controller technology. They have six out of six gigabit per second ports on their latest uh, chipsets. But they don't have SSD, you know, they don't make SSDs kind of like Intel does. So maybe they didn't have as much initiative to build something like this. So it'd be cool to see if they kind of follow one step, create this type of caching thing, if they could do it as well as Intel has because of the wide range of uh, technologies that Intel is embedded in. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff. Z68, I think you'll agree, is kind of like now if you're going to build a Sandy Bridge system that's not you know, for a home theater PC specific and you'd want it to be, you know, super small or something like that. Z68 is is easily the better choice over the P67. It offers everything of that plus more. And <laughs> you can get motherboards from 120 bucks to 300 bucks already, you know, starting when the launch happened this week. So, oh boy, <laughs> I'm not ready to upgrade that system yet. Should we, uh, <laughs> should we talk about Chromebooks or should we thank our first sponsor today? 
Uh, let's 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 thank our first of uh, today's podcast sponsors. That would be Netflix. Netflix delivers movies directly to your home, and that saves you time, money, and hassle. Gone are the days of having to go to your local movie rental store. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies stream directly to your PC or Mac, or stream to your TV via a Netflix-ready device, including the Xbox 360. PlayStation 3, Nintendo Wii, or uh, many other devices. I think uh, I heard today on TNT that the Android app just launched, so you can take a look at that. Uh, plus, you can still get DVDs by mail in about one business day, DVDs and Blu-rays, depending on which plan you want to go with there. And that's something that, uh, while I enjoy using the Netflix streaming a whole lot, my wife definitely still likes to get the DVDs. You can play those upstairs on the older setup in the bedroom, all that type of stuff. Um, Never any late fees or dues with DVDs or obviously with the streaming technology. So that's good news. And, you know, Netflix asked us to, to recommend a streaming selection for you guys. Something that, that maybe we like or we recommend. It's something you can get started with instantly and watch basically as soon as this show is over. Because we don't want you to stop now. We want you to listen to the end of the show. But then, <laughs> you know, we want you to watch this movie. And uh, one that popped out at me when I was looking through the list of streamable movies was Mortal Kombat, the original Mortal Kombat movie that came out in 1995. Uh, <laughs> Could I just Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or one of the... Cri- no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, we can use those next week. Um, Mortal Kombat, <laughs> you know, 1995, I'm trying to think. I was only 14 or 15 years old when that came out. Huge fan of the, of, of, uh, uh, of the video games, obviously. It was kind of like in the days of when the Super Nintendo version of Mortal Kombat came out, it didn't have any of the blood in it. The Sega Genesis version did, and there was all that kind of media hype about it, and this movie came out. And it's it's one of those, um, I don't know if we call it a B movie, but it, it definitely has it the C feel. Minus. C minus, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, it's one of those horrifically awful, but really fun to watch type of things. Yes. You know, if, if you have any, you know, if you have any nostalgia about you in the Mortal Kombat series and fighting games of Street Fighter, Virtual Fighter, Mortal Kombat, then, you know, the characters and the, the stupid things that they say and the obviously kind of hokey story that they work around. So there's these fights all the time. Um, I think, you know, this is one that you, you, you could definitely spend an hour and a half, two hours of your evening enjoying uh, with some friends, maybe drinking some beer. That always helps these types of flicks. So uh, check that out. You can stream that instantly uh, just by signing up for an account. And to do that, all you have to do is go to netflix.com slash twit, sign up for your free trial, and uh, you can watch that or any other of the thousands of TV episodes or movies instantly with your free trial membership. That's netflix.com slash twit, and we thank them for their support of This Week in Computer Hardware. Now, you wanted to mention Chromebooks. Yeah, which, well, Google, Google I.O. this week, it's their big developers conference. Um, yeah. Uh, and the big thing, you know, first of all, like Chrome, 160 million users worldwide and, and Android, you know, gigantic growth in Android. Android at home actually is something anybody in the home automation should keep an eye out for it's super early. I think it's, it's, it's more of a framework and a concept at this point. Um, right. but, uh, they announced that June 15th will be the release date for Chromebooks. If everybody remembers the Chrome OS experiment where people could sign up, they got sent a, basically a free netbook from uh, Google to test out their new uh, browser slash operating system. And they're essentially uh, Atom N570 systems uh, from Acer and Samsung that are going to be available from Amazon and Best Buy on June 15th. And so is this like the CR48, but now yeah. they're no longer giving it away? It's You have to this buy the, it. And- this is the product that was formerly known as the experiment. Uh, the, the Chrome OS experiment was with the CR48, uh, where they gave them away. And they announced at um, Google I.O. that they would start it's selling these uh, to consumers and also um, doing a service for people who, like, maybe you're running a small office um, or you are a student and for like 20 bucks a month, you get a certain amount of bandwidth. There's going to be 3G versions of these. Hmm. Like even if you don't sign up for 3G, apparently you get 100 megabytes a month of 3G uh, on Verizon. I'm still trying to sort out some of the details on that. Hmm. Um, pricing is completely unknown at this point. I'm assuming it's going to be seriously cheap because we're looking at systems with 16 gigabytes SSD drives, as near as I can tell, uh, Atom N570 processors. Um, <laughs> now we know why I'm squeaking. Sorry, everybody. The uh, 
So they're they're fairly, you know, they're they're talking about like all day computing. So I assume it's going to be eight to ten hours of battery life, at least I hope. Um, and eight second boot times, instant resumes. And could you guys pause for one second while I? Yes. <laughs> I'm making a note in the show notes here for the editors when they see that as well. I'm very, very sorry, everyone. Um, okay. the, uh, so, you know, the idea is that you've got, you know, I think it's going to be interesting because one of the things they hammered on is, you know, your your applications, your your data, your content, your, you know, Google Music obviously announced this week. All your stuff's going to be on the web in the cloud. Right. And you're going to boot your system up and log in. And that way, whoever logs into whichever machine, um, all of their stuff is immediately available. So if your friend with a you know Chrome OS account logs into your machine, then they have access to all of their stuff on your machine uh, without you you know being able to touch it. So it's a really, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens because you know uh, Jim Lauterbach, uh, my boss over here, was like, "It's People PC, People PC is back." Um, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much my reaction. Um, but it's interesting, you know, to watch the pendulum. Like, you know, it was, you know, it goes from being like client to server, and, and then it's, you know, web, you know, local hosting. Then it's the cloud, and I think it's gonna be interesting yeah. to see what kind of traction um, Google can get out of this because they, obviously they've had huge success on on hardware with Android. Um, now they're actually trying to really go after one of Microsoft's mainstays, and for that matter, uh, OS X's mainstays. So they're starting small. Which is exactly how they started with Android. So something to keep an eye out for in the middle of June when all those start shipping. Very cool. Uh, there was Nvidia's in the news again this week. One of the more interesting stories is kind of not relevant to say it flew under the radar at all, but it, with a lot of other stuff going on this week, it maybe didn't get as much attention as it normally would. But they bought um, a baseband supplier known as Icera, I-C-E-R-A. They're shelling out a hefty amount of $367 million in cash, expects to complete the acquisition in approximately 30 days. Um, And and what this does essentially is that it allows NVIDIA to compete on a more complete, and in a more complete way, I guess, with manufacturers like Qualcomm that manufacture their own baseband. So this would allow NVIDIA to include the... uh, receiver technology and a Tegra chip, maybe possibly integrated into a single SOC. Uh, one less chip that these uh, vendors would have to buy from somebody or, or build onto a PCB for their upcoming designs. Um, you know, that I guess Isera is kind of a smaller company to begin with anyway. This will probably help right. them get uh, more of a footprint in the market because Tegra 2 has been fairly successful both in the phones, uh, but more so in the tablet market, especially thus far. Uh, do you read anything more into this acquisition by NVIDIA? Is this Are they really making that that dive into the SOC market to almost a complete way? I don't know. I, I think at this point they're, they're doing – I think they need anything that helps – you know, I, I think basically they're buying technology to help the Tegra, Tegra slash Tegra 2 slash Tegra 3 slash Tegra 4 um, uh, chips, chipsets, whatever we want to call them at this point. Right. Um, you know, the opening line of the Tom's Hardware article is like, you know, is NVIDIA gearing up to, to fight with Qualcomm? I'd say, yeah, actually, I think they are. Um, oh, yeah. You know, certainly Intel Intel would would love to take the ARM processors out of the, you know, iPhone and iPad. Uh, you know, NVIDIA would like to replace the ARM processors in the iPhone and the iPad. They'd certainly love, I mean, the ARM business. You you spoke about this a few weeks ago. Like, the, you know, actually, you didn't speak about this. You and I talked about um, the, the the guy that runs NVIDIA, who basically mm-hmm. is like, the most successful processor of the 21st century is the ARM. You know, and everybody kind of looks around at each other, and he explains how pretty much, you know, every small object that people are buying has an ARM processor in it. So, yep. yeah, I, I think NVIDIA I think NVIDIA is basically looking beyond the GPU market and, and, and trying to make uh, the Tegra platform as strong and robust and diverse as possible. Yeah, there it is right there. NVIDIA plans to integrate it into the Tegra. Yeah, I mean, you know, I still want to see the battery life on the Tegra get a little bit better, but, you know. I agree with that. <laughs> yep. I, I want everything. You know, I would like 42 hours of battery life out of my notebook <laughs> to weigh 12 ounces with a 15-inch screen, um, you know, and ponies. All right. 
So well, there you go. The, the other of, bit of news. Oh, I'm sorry. The, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say like, isn't this the exact opposite of the story that came out two weeks ago? <laughs> yes, this is. This is. Um, if remember, we talked about Nvidia like losing market share in the graphics world, and we talked about well. Now, I thought, well, this really is more of a, a of a statement on the fact that so many Sandy Bridge processors and AMD Fusion processors are shipping with GPUs integrated on them and that this that report was counting those as GPU shipments. That's why we saw such a huge drop in market share for NVIDIA. Well, uh, a report from the same company, John Petty Research, came out looking at discrete graphics card shipments. Um, they saw very, very slight increases uh, versus the previous quarter, I want to say, you know, less than a percent or so. Uh, but what if we look at, this is discrete market only. So AMD and NVIDIA are the only competition here. There's Matrox and there's Via S3, I guess, but they don't, you know, they count for less than a half of a percent of the market share according to these reports. Um, what's interesting is if we look at it year over year in the discrete market, AMD has gained 16% market share while NVIDIA has lost 8%. So, the 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 drop that Intel saw in the previous report that was like twenty eight percent or something like that is was obviously kind of overstating um, their demise to a certain degree, right? They definitely have have gone down in market share. They went from sixty four percent dominant market share to sixty percent. So they're still the dominant company in terms of discrete solutions, mobile and desktop. You know, sixty percent versus thirty eight, almost thirty-nine percent from AMD. Um, but if we look at year over year change, AMD has moved up to over forty percent and AMD is now down to about fifty-nine. So AMD still has a long way to go to catch up. But obviously the Radeon HD five thousand, six thousand series have done a very good job of increasing the awareness of AMD's brands, the Radeon technology, Ifinity, you know, all these different things that are going on. And and it's and it's possible that if this kind of trend continues for NVIDIA, they will have a lot of problems um, in the future. So, yeah, I just felt like we needed to bring up this report since we talked about the other one the week before where it was all doom and gloom for NVIDIA. This one's just slightly doom and gloom, I guess. Nope, we lose Patrick. Um, Can you hear me now? Yep, there you go. Okay. Apparently, I managed to lean on the mute button on my headset. Um, Fantastic. Now, you <laughs> you are often discuss, discussing your love-hate relationship with the uh, OverDrive from Sprint, which is a wireless broadband router device. And apparently, you've been spending a little bit of time with the Verizon 4G LTE mobile hotspot, the MiFi version of that. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't tell my Sprint OverDrive mode. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> It's actually not funny at all. The uh, uh, I can't think of the company that makes the overdrive modem. Um, oh, I don't remember either. I know Novatel makes the MiFi's, and it is not Novatel. Um, Sierra Wireless, um, and I've been using Sierra Wireless products forever. And I got to be honest with you, the the Sprint overdrive is the first time I ever had pain. Uh, involving a a, a Sierra wireless problem, the, the overheating problems and charging until they did some firmware upgrades or some speed issues. There was I couldn't charge it without like turning it upside down, taking the battery cover off. Um, you know, they did firmware updates that seemed to resolve a lot of the issues. Um, but it's kind of funny. We we were talking about it uh, the the 4G LTE mobile hotspot, the MiFi 4510L, which is made by Novatel. Uh, it's the Verizon. Um, MiFi for 4G and oh my goodness, um, yep. you know, you're looking at several hours of battery life. I want to say around four hours of battery life people are seeing and mm-hmm. we were getting, you know, and I've, I don't think I've ever seen more than two megabits per second, maybe three megabits per second on my Sprint overdrive. And that may just, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I got an email recently from somebody in rally who's like, I get five to eight all the time. And it's like, okay, um, maybe I just spend too much time in Vegas and Los Angeles and, <laughs> and, you know, other places, but I have yet to break, I think four megabits per second on the Wi-Fi. I don't even think I've broken three megabits per second on the Sprint overdrive. But it was amazing to realize that a uh, the 4G LTE service was actually you know it's 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 rolling out it's being adopted and they were hitting like I was getting 30 megabits per second uh, download speeds and 
wow. you know, something in the neighborhood of that, uh, I want to say about 14 or 16 upload speeds, which was fantastic. Now, the flip side is you can, that means you can blow through your miserable <laughs> five gigabyte or 10 gigabytes. Yes cap in a matter of hours uh, if you have a particularly large file transfer or series of them. So it's certainly not a substitute for a, a, a cable modem or a DSL line at home. Um, but I was just, I've, I've actually been thinking like, oh, I've been with Sprint forever. Maybe I should move to Verizon. Unfortunately, with my Sprint modem, I have no data cap. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny like, you know, you know, can I get 10 hours or 20 hours of, of high-speed mobile broadband uh, uh, versus an unlimited amount of, you know, DSL-quality uh, broadband. Right. So yeah, it was, I, it was interesting using, looking at that. I've been using the Samsung uh, mm -hmm. 4G LTE modem, and I, I'm kind of in the same route as you. Uh, I'm a Sprint customer on my cell phone. I have Sprint, mm -hmm. uh, the MiFi devices as well, and I love the the unlimited 4G on it. But the the the, the Verizon stuff is so fast. Um, you know, when I was at CES in January, I used the very first like I think the the USB modems had just come out. They'd only been out for a couple of weeks, and I remember I think I saw you there, and I was telling you it's like, yeah. hey, nobody else has connectivity. Nobody else is on the Verizon 4G network. This this USB modem is saving our saving our hide because we're able to get you know 15 megs down and six megs up. Uh, Inside the Venetian, during while everybody else is dead on in the water. Um, hopefully, it stays that way. You know, we just got in one of the Droid Charge phones as well. That's on the 4G LTE network, and it was right. impressive how fast it was and everything. So there's there's a lot of stuff kind of going on here, and 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 I think uh, I, I we just I just really wanted to stay that way. I really wanted to stay fast. I, I, I look. I'll be, I'll be really curious once once they get really serious. You know, I, I almost. You know, it's the cynic in me. I'm going to assume that the, the 4G LTE speeds are going to get slower as yeah. they start to really ramp up on subscribers. Um, you know, uh, we don't know at this point. We, May 15th, we know that the uh, HCC, um, um, the HCC Thunderbolt, right, <laughs> the uh, has yep. basically they, they, they're doing tethering on that for free through the 15th. And then we don't know what's going to happen after the 15th. We don't know. Yep. You know, the general consensus is that June or July, Verizon's going to stop moving away from unlimited data contracts for 4G telephone clients like the Thunderbolt. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do in terms of tethering, the cost of tethering and whether they put a cap on it. You know, our, yeah. our, our, our CTO over here who, who does really scary things like go talk to Congress about what's going on with mobile broadband. Um, he thinks the caps have to go away on mobile broadband. Um, Would be nice. Yeah, he's older and smarter than me. I mean, he worked with JPL <laughs> and he can program and, and, and you know, and, and you know, and, and he's a snappy dresser. So part of me is like, you know, he's probably right. Um, and, and then there's another part of me that's convinced that I can be frustrated with, with telephone companies for the rest of my life. But yeah, if you are, though, if you are thinking about signing up for a 4G service, take a real, real close look at Verizon's 4G LTE because it is, you know, for the foreseeable future, ridiculously fast. Indeed. So. What's going on with the uh, the iMac hard disk drives? So this this was a story passed me by two different people uh, earlier this afternoon, actually, and it's a a blog post, a news post over at OWC, who you you might know, probably most familiar with, uh, they make other world kind of computing. Yes, they they they're known for their Mac compatible SSDs and and uh, upgrade solutions and that type of stuff. Um, they wrote a blog post though about the new 2011 iMacs and the viability for what they're calling their turnkey upgrade service, which is what they're used to for, you know, a sit in your iMac, they'll upgrade the hard drive and these other components that, you know, Apple doesn't necessarily allow consumers to do very easily. You know, there's no mm -hmm. screws that easily take it apart, but they'd be able to do it. Um, they're, they're talking about the new 2011 version uh, using three and a half inch hard drives that, um, what's it say here, that the... It uses a different SATA power cable now that has seven pins instead of four pins. And somewhere in that is integrated the uh, heat, the, the, the temperature monitor. And so you cannot replace the hard drive anymore uh, without the fans inside the iMac. As soon as you replace that hard drive, disconnect that power cable, the fans go on full speed. There's no way to change it. There's no software to change. 
the the fan speed controller at all. And this is even worse than what happened in 2009 where they had their own kind of specific sensor cable where uh, you could replace Seagate drives with other Seagate drives and Western digital drives with other Western digital drives. Um, now you don't even have that option. So now that they've gone to this this custom seven pin configuration. So apparently hard drive temperature control is regulated by a combination of this cable and Apple proprietary firmware on the hard drive itself. Uh, so from their testing, they found that removing this drive from the system or even from that bay causes the machine's hard drive fans to spin at maximum speed and replacing the drive with any non-Apple original drive will result in the iMac failing the Apple hardware test. Um, so they're basically kind of going on here. It's like, look, we sell SSDs that go to the Mac audience. We can't sell SSDs to the iMac audience anymore. They're hmm. also talking about... Um, their their question is is this planned obsolescence at work or is it or is it uh, the freedom promised in 1984 being revoked? Uh, <laughs> also hard, hard drives are going to fail. They're definitely going to fail. Replacement strategies on it are uh, apparently going to be abysmal. You have to go through Apple, uh, and this is. You know, this is kind of stuff that I think a lot of PC users will say, well, they've been that way all the time, you know, take a real negative stance to it. But even if OWC, who is, you know, a stalwart in the Apple market, right, uh, they're starting to get in on on all this stuff, too, that it's it's becoming more and more likely that it's going to be a problem. So, I mean, there's not much to it other than that. If you have an iMac that, you know, one of the 2011 iMacs, they'll try to place your hard drive, I guess, let somebody... Well, some of these experts try to figure it out more, but they've, they've basically said they've been trying to do it for weeks and weeks, can't figure it out any way, and they're basically out of ideas. So, mm. you know, you know, on, on one hand, I, I, I have faith in OWC that they'll figure something out. Um, on the other hand, you know, this is the direction Apple's been moving on. I mean, iFix has been screaming about this uh for you know a while now in fact they've yep. if you haven't seen it you know iFixit has an entire system so you can replace if you if i take my iphone 4 to get repaired you know i can guarantee you that they're going to swap the screws on my iphone 4 out from phillips head screws i can use a jeweler screwdriver to undo to these semi-proprietary apple screws and uh you know iFixit's got a kit for you know unscrewing your iphone um but there's 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 nothing in me that I, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to say I'm, I'm shocked and dismayed, you know, uh, <laughs> Apple's, you know, Apple's spin on this is, you know, we're going to have the most advanced technology available, yada, yada, yada. And the cold, hard reality is most people who buy pre-built systems, and this is not the typical, you know, Twitch listener, but, you know, viewer, but sure. the typical person who buys, you know, a Dell and HP and Apple machine, you know, name your brand. You know, probably 90% of those machines, nobody ever opens the case, upgrades them, or changes the hardware configuration inside. You know, th those numbers Agreed. may have changed, but those were pretty solid numbers when I first heard them a while ago. You know, and I would say in terms of Apple uh, customers, the percentage is probably even lower. Um, you know what I mean? The the person who buys an iMac, they they may be a designer, they may be a sophisticated video editor, they may be doing all sorts of interesting stuff, but chances are they're not cracking open that system to upgrade the hard drive. Um so, you know, uh, I, that doesn't make me any less disappointed, Sure, <laughs> um, but I'm not particularly surprised either. And, you know, who knows, maybe at some point Apple will release some really cool update about why this seven pin plug is so cool <laughs> and, and how we should all be moving to the seven pin plug. And, and uh, yeah, it's I, better I, for us. I can hear you holding your breath in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, I guess before we jump into our emails for this week, let's take a quick break. Thank the second of today's sponsor, Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. Squarespace.com has an easy-to-use user interface for creating and managing a website or blog. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. It has hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of these designs to fit your needs if you want to do that. It has beautiful iPhone and iPad apps for up, uh, for updating your blog on the go, online resources, and uh, a special support team to give you personal help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's pretty key. It's an all-inclusive service that includes um, several modules to build your website, like uh, the blog module that supports importing and exporting uh, to and from WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. 
Uh, it has a form builder if you want to collect information, uh, email addresses, and that kind of stuff from your readers or visitors. Flickr photo display, Twitter widgets, social media buttons to connect your website to Facebook and Twitter, Google Maps, lots more. It also includes website tracking so you know how many times your site's viewed, built-in search engine optimizing, permission access handling, and it's built on a cloud architecture for speed and site stability. So you don't have to worry about getting put on Dig or Slashdot or Engadget or something like that and having it bring your website down. You can use Squarespace for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it anytime. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch, T-W-I-C-H. Sign up for a free, uh, free account, rather. No credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website right there. You got two weeks to build it, configure it, see if you like it. Uh, we are sure you're going to. After you try it out, be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off the monthly rates. That's squarespace.com slash twitch. And we thank them for their support of This Week in Computer Hardware. First question of the day, Daniel wants to know about his upgrade options. He says, well, the first question is whether or not upgrading from an older SSD to a newer one will be worth it from a performance and or cost perspective. I'm currently using an Intel X25M 80 gigabyte drive, so I lack trim support and the small size is a pain at times. Secondly, how is the scaling of Crossfire and SLI these SLI, excuse me, these days? At one point in the past, I attempted using SLI with a pair of 8800 GTs, but at that time, it felt like the scalability and compatibility with various programs was somewhat lacking, and it was not worth my time at that point to use the SLI. Has it improved over the years? I suspect this is a new listener to the show. Has it improved over the years <laughs> to a sufficient degree? that it would be worth investing in should money eventually allow the ultimate goal is three dell ultrashop monitors at least 24 inches each i'm jealous being used nice. and i was considering the amd 6970 as a single card solution my current monitor is a gateway fhd 2400 so i do not think i could deal with any monitor having an individual resolution of less than 1920 by 1280 um look dude first of all i just want to say the whole 1920 by 1200 versus 1920 by 1080 it's it's 120 pixels. Get over it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll, that said, I, I am desperate for 30 inch, 27, 30 inch flat panels that are 2560 by 1600 to become remotely affordable um, mm -hmm. because I was working on one of those recently and I want the huge real estate. Um, SLI Crossfire have changed radically from your last experience, Daniel. Uh, uh, you know, close to 100% performance improvement. Ridiculous, mm -hmm. ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous improvements um, in performance compared to the early days of Crossfire and SLI. In terms of the older SSD, man, you know, I, I'm I, still I, running an X25. Yeah, so he, <laughs> he's got the first X25. generation X25M. The only kind yeah. of downside to that is that those are the drives that are limited to like 80 megs read right. speed or i'm sorry write speed something like that um i don't think you're going to see a big performance improvement real world performance improvement if you upgrade that drive um this, he says the small size is a pain for him that obviously will improve if you buy 160 gig or 256 240 gig ssd you're going to pay more for it of course um i don't i don't think from a performance standpoint it's worth upgrading from an X25, if you had like one of the really, really early SSDs, mm -hmm. J-Micron base, things like that, yeah, throw that stuff away, get something new uh, like the, the X25Ms, the, the, uh, the Intel 310 or 510, the, the Vertex 2 drives, all of those. I, but I think moving from this uh, is kind of a waste if you're looking for performance benefits. If you're looking for capacity changes, then you have a different story. So I'm with you uh, on that one. Email from Peter about Serial ATA Hub says, loves the show. Keep on rocking. A few questions. First, SATA was supposed to be hot pluggable like USB hard drives, but at least in Windows XP, that doesn't seem to work correctly for me. The drive doesn't show up before I reboot or until I reboot. Uh, any tips to make it work with hot plugging and dis uh, disabling without rebooting, or is it just impossible? Second, I have a bunch of SATA hard drives of random size and have filled the six ports of my ASUS motherboard uh, completely. I've built a homemade shelf system with cooling that stands right next to the PC chassis. Uh, PC chassis. It has switches that can turn the power on and off to the individual drives laying on the shelves, and the SATA cables from the hard drives can reach the SATA ports on the motherboard. This is kind of an interesting setup. I'd like to see a picture of this. The question is, how do I uh, connect 
more than six drives to my PC. Are setups possible kind of like they are for USB? I know speed will be shared, but that's no problem because all the disks transfer data at the, or not all the disks will transfer data at the same time. I don't want to run RAID of any kind because I'd like to be able to keep a hard drive in place in a USB case uh, and it will just work down the road. Um, so hot pluggable SS, uh, hard drives have never been as reliable as USB-based technologies. Windows XP should have support for it, although I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on that to some degree. You need to make sure that in your BIOS that you, are, you have AHCI or RAID mode enabled on your SSD controller. That is a requirement of hot swappable compatibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, also check and make sure that the motherboard supports it in general because I remember so he's talking about an Asus P5K Deluxe motherboard uh, I believe that's a socket 775 option um, not 100% sure on that but I, I think when they, when this first started a lot of motherboards didn't necessarily support the hot swap capability so check that out uh, as well, but I think I think going to BIOS if you're running an IDE mode or enhanced mode or legacy mode on your controller, it will not support hot swap. So you have to be running in an AHCI or RAID mode for that. Uh, as for the serial ATA hubs, I've known that these have existed for a long time, and I still have never tested them. But I did find a couple of URLs. If you go to satahub.com, ironically enough, or if uh, you just Google for serial ATA hub, SATA hub. You also find cooldrives.com, which has some listed here. And, um, you know, they, they will look and act much like you would expect a USB hub to work. Uh, there's external ones. There's ones that are internal. Sounds like an external one would be the most convenient for you. Uh, there's a SATA hub five port multiplier uh, using a silicon image 3726 chip for 99 bucks, or you can get internal ones for $80. So, um, yeah, it's, there, there are definitely options out there. These definitely work. I know Alan has used these before. Uh, I don't know these specific ones, but has used port multipliers and that kind of stuff before. before. So uh, they will work. And whatever weird multi-shelf system you have built for hard drives uh, and switches that will power them on and off, make sure that switching system is safe. Uh, you know, turning electric on and off to your hard drives very quickly like that might not be the best thing. But uh, if you're comfortable with that, uh, check out check out those those two or three websites and see if they've got what you're looking for. Tyler's got a question about going from VHS to digital. He says, my mother would like me to help her transfer her home movies from VHS to some kind of digital format. What would be the cheapest and easiest way to do this? Is there some sort of add-in card for my desktop that will work? Oh boy, Tyler, I gotta be honest with you. Um, if I, uh, man, I would be sorely tempted to go to my local Costco and hand them the big stack of stack of VHS tapes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have a lot of them, you know, I have, I have, a, I have a really good friend who works over at CNET and evaluates digital cameras. And I'm like, hey, you know, what slide scanner should I use? Yada, 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 because there's a big pile mm-hmm. of slides we want to digitize. And she's like, no, you think you want to digitize them. What you really want to do is take them to a service who will digitize them for you because it's just, you know, I mean, you can spend hours and days and weeks and years doing this. You know, if you have time to do that, awesome. Um, But, you know, you you go to somebody like Costco. Basically, there's there's several vendors that all kind of use the same service. uh, you know, I just have to go to Costco because I go to Costco for everything. But uh, I would be sorely tempted to take the tapes or the eight millimeter, you know, video, eight millimeter uh, movies or whatever they are and have them professionally transferred. That mm. said, if you want to do it yourself, you're going to need a VCR, preferably one that's in good shape. Those are getting harder to find. Yeah. Uh, you know, your local Best Buy has gone from a wall of VCRs to like three. Uh, two of which chances are from vendors you never heard of. Um, you know, it's, but basically you are going to need uh, a VCR that's in good shape. I would highly recommend getting some kind of a cleaning tape or learning how to clean the heads properly because older VHS tapes tend to be pretty trashed. And I would experiment with a movie you don't care about because, you know, there's nothing worse than finding out that mom's wedding tape is on a VHS tape that was stored in a room that conditions kind of sucked and the oxides are just you know, falling off as we speak. And, you know, yep. you want to you wanna grab that information first time every time. Um, I'm a big fan of Hop Hog. Uh, 
Um, they do yep, a lot of really stuff. good products. Uh, USB Live uh, 2 is probably as good as anything else out there. Um, basically, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, take the S video out from the VHS uh, deck, connect that to the Hopog 2, to USB connection. Um, and, you know, I would capture it to, you know, depending on you know, if you have an older system, I'd probably capture it to uh, MPEG 2. If a newer system, I'd probably capture it to MPEG 4 and keep it simple. Um, throw as much bandwidth on it as it, as much bandwidth at it as it wants. And, um, you know, clean the you know clean the heads every couple of yeah. tapes if they look like they're getting mungy and you know, you know enjoy there, it. There are uh, a couple of pieces of um, software here. There's actually one I'm looking at called Honest Technology VHS to DVD 4.0 mm-hmm. plus storage software, and it is uh, it's a USB 2.0 video capture device that has S video and um, composite input, and then the USB port obviously goes to your computer. And again, you still have the VHS player, and then you record it to the software. Um, and then I, I have no idea about the quality of the software, although um, you know it's it's gotten you know four stars and, and some and some favorable Amazon reviews on right. that. Six, four, four, four stars on four out of five on Amazon with sixty one reviews is a pretty good amount. Roxio has a piece of software called Easy VHS to DVD with a USB device that does something very similar. Uh, uh, based on the descriptions that I'm reading here. And uh, somebody in the chat room said, don't forget that you can get, I don't know if you can still get them, but you can get VHS DVD recording devices. Now that you're probably going to spend $150 mm. maybe more for, you know, where you put a blank DVD in, you put the VHS in, hit, you know, hit play, hit record. Those, those sometimes, uh, I, me- I remember those being very popular. <sighs> But good luck trying to find them now. I just did a quick yeah. search. I, I would also say I would I would really hesitate towards during if if you're if you're capturing this video because mom wants the memories, mm-hmm. capturing you know, you know unless you're going to go all the way to to make the effort to find archival grade DVDs to burn inside that VHS to DVD capture device because um, the hard drive ones are even harder to find. Um, Man, I, I, I really, I want you to capture this to a computer, then upload the videos somewhere safe or back them up onto another hard drive. Because, um, man, I'm just, I'm just not a big fan of, of DVD-R um, as, a, as an archival storage medium. There's, there's archival-grade DVDs that are pretty good, but you have to work really hard to track those down. I'm just, I'm just not my favorite thing at this point. If, if you're talking about stuff you really want to be available for your kids or your grandchildren to see, if you're, you know, if you're into genealogy or if you're into sharing this stuff over a long period of time. Um, something also, as you mentioned, uh, Hopog's uh, HD uh, PVR. It's a really cool uh, HD capture device that does uh, component video in. Like if you want to capture, uh, you know, you can't capture gameplay on a PS3. You can because uh, they they actually lock down the they do HTTP lockdown on the HDMI, but you can do uh, component video output on that and capture it through a HTTP VR from Hophog. That also does uh-huh. standard definition. So if you want to buy something that you can use also for HD capture and not just SD capture, I also got to say I always use whatever video editing program I like. I use that to capture my video. I almost invariably hate all of the dedicated uh, true uh, you know kind of you know whatever to to you know, VHS to your computer uh, capture software. And that may just be because I've spent just enough time dealing with editors and, and video editing software that I just want to not think about it, capture my video and, and create my file. Indeed. So <laughs> Dan has uh, a question about SSD failures. Go ahead. Oh, uh, I was going to say, Dan has a question about SSD failures. Says, I thought it might add that we are seeing a high rate of failure of Intel X25 drives on our virtualization vaulting platform. Our entire SAN backend is backed up in three stages using a high availability nodes across two data centers, snapshots, disk to solid state, 2.8 terabytes an hour, daily solid state to SATA, journal, SATA to journal. We go through about three to five SSDs a month and have an open case with HP and Intel about the MTF rates, mean time to failure mm-hmm. rates. It's funny. We had a, an email on on Texel this week from a viewer who's installed like fifty uh, drives in various uh, Lenovo notebooks, and all of the the I want to say the Patriot Torx drives failed. 
And he's pretty sure that's actually a, a sort of a, a size of the drive issue um, because like all of two other brands of drives he had had no failure rates on, on those machines. But it's interesting, you know, this almost sounds like this would be like a worst case scenario in some ways for an SSD drive um, where you're going from disk to solid state two to three terabytes an hour. That's a lot of writing to yeah, a hard it is. drive, especially an SSD hard drive. Like in the meantime, yes. the failure is supposed to be considerably higher um, um, than what this guy's seeing. I'm assuming three to five SSDs a month means he's probably having failures every six to eight months on a drive. But wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did he, he was saying uh, we go through three to five SSDs a month. I was reading that as they have to replace three to five SSDs every month. Right, but you know, I figure like if 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 he's using X X twenty five drives, I'm assuming he started a few months ago, so he's at least getting like, you know, I wonder how many months he's getting out of each drive. Is it, is it a year? Is oh, it six okay, months? Gotcha. Is it, um, you know, nonetheless, that's that's a that's a tab I wouldn't want to be picking up. <laughs> yeah, you know, this this is a, this is like a a, a, a trend, uh, a theory that I have kind of put Alan, uh, our storage guy, into looking on or looking into all these different kinds of reports. I think most of us will kind of agree that what we're seeing are is probably slightly overblown. Um, right. But you're right. I mean, he's saying they're doing snapshots that are disk to solid state at 2.8 terabytes an hour. That's huge, right? And he doesn't say if they're using X25M or X25E drives, which is interesting because the E drives are SLC and the M drives are MLC. So if he, if they're using the M drives in this very enterprise environment, then, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's not what it's intended for. This is a consumer-based product. If they're using E drives and they're still seeing those, uh, uh, those rates, then maybe there's more to it as well. So... Uh, we have an email from Bruce who very simply asks, any information on UEFI on AMD motherboards? What is taking so long? For those who don't know, EFI <laughs> is extendable, extended firmware interface, extendable firmware interface. I don't know. It's the cool um, firmware you get in an, in an Apple machine. <laughs> right. So this is, this is like BIOS firmware adjustment that's, that's changed, upgraded, updated finally from the BIOS that we have been used to for the last 15 years, right? Where right. blue screen, yellow text, keyboard, enter, plus minus keys. That's pretty much all you got. Now you get access to a mouse. You can do graphics. You can do animations, these types of things. Um, Intel, uh, Sandy Bridge motherboards, a lot of these have it. All of the ASUS boards are, are, are have it. Z68 boards, it's a lot, uh, a lot of them are using it as well. If you look at our Z68 initial review, you'll see screenshots of that kind of stuff as well. Um, basically, long story short, there are some AMD motherboards that have this today, but they are fusion-based motherboards. And when I asked ASUS, they had a quote that says, for the upcoming series of AMD motherboards based on the 900 series chipset, you can continue to expect our leading UEFI, implement, UEFI implementation. So it looks like with um, the, the bulldozer-capable Lano-capable chipsets coming up here in the near future that uh, UFE, UEFI will find its way into the AMD solutions. So, hmm. One me, last uh, question let's... before we go? <laughs> yeah, I'll take this one. I'll, I'll read this one off. Um, this is from Tariq about a home NAS. says, love the show. Appreciate what you guys do. Regularly listen. Thanks. Just to let you know that you have at least one listener in Oman and he said he would not be offended if we have to look up where Oman is. <laughs> it's near Yemen. It's south of yes, Qatar. Exactly. It's east of Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> actually, that's one of the reasons I picked this email is because I was like, you know what? Uh, Saturday, I'm flying to Abu Dhabi. And I was like, wow, the irony there is kind of interesting. Right, would right you, in that another sacred. wedding? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that would be, that would be a really... Uh, remote wedding location. Now, this is for some work meetings and stuff. But anyway, he says he's trying to set up a home NAS. His home is wired with Cat6 cables and gigabit routers, so bandwidth is not a problem. He'd like to set up a NAS with a minimum of 10 terabytes available of space with at least RAID 5. Data will include iTunes library, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he wants to stream from PS3 to TV, TrueCrypt data library, BitTorrents. Uh, his preference is to have DLNA support in the NAS since he's planning to buy DLNA compliant TV and being able to play movies without a PS3 or an Xbox in between. He narrowed his choices down between two brands, Drobo and Synology. Drobo seems to be the highly recommended option 
uh, seems to be a tough, unbreakable box. Synology seems to have a richer software library. It seems to be able to do more out of the box. This is kind of the key here. He says the NAS box is running in a tough environment. Oman is hot. Temperatures regularly exceed 110 Fahrenheit in the summer. Unit will be operating indoors, but the ambient temperatures will be very high. Also, the box will be operating in a dusty environment. Uh, money's not an issue. The value of the data is very high. Um, so he's looking for recommendations on the brands, uh, maybe recommendations on which particular hard drives to use. Uh, mm-hmm. Main criteria is heat produced by the drive and reliability. So he doesn't think speed's going to be an issue, but especially, you know, we're talking about a NAS device here. Nothing to be directly inside a system. Um, he also had a, another side question about having two NASs that will mirror each other and if that was easy to do. And I think the short answer to that one is no. Mm-hmm. I don't know any way to do that even like if you look at the higher end stuff like the drobone synology i haven't seen anything like that um i think we know what we would both recommend for hard drives for this right like what hard drives you like to see inside western digital greens yeah anything that's slow that spins slowly yeah anything it's designed you know i i i I don't know if i would go to enterprise drives necessarily but 5400 rpm enterprise greens i think it's designed to spin slowly and generate less heat which is going to be critical. I'd probably say this is one of those situations where throwing as much money at as high level a product as you can afford is probably a really good idea. Um, You know, so, you know, looking at Synology, probably, you know, DS15 plus DX15, maybe taking a strong look at some of the rack mount products. Cooling is really critical. Um, when you're getting to like 110 degrees Fahrenheit, is that just a, yeah. a, a a giant opportunity for fail, especially if you're talking about 110 degrees in a non-air-conditioned um, uh, environment. Um, you know, normally, you know, when you build a data center, you kind of you're 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 restricted. Your data center is restricted by two things: the amount of electricity you can run into the data center, and the amount of cooling you can provide for the room, right? Because computers generate right. heat. NAS, you know, devices generate heat. Um, you know, we, we did some pretty uh, uh, crazy upgrades here at Vision 3 um, where we've got to, I want to say, is it IX? Um, I want to get the name right. Um, I am going to have to... Man, these guys are going to be really irritated with me. Um, let me look up the name. Quick. <laughs> sure. Um, the, um, wh- go ahead. Go ahead no, no, no. I well, I was just going to say somebody in the chat room actually just pointed me to a specific Drobo for business device that will do backup from one uh, B800FS to another B801S. And I'm looking right here. If I add one of these combination parts to it, you're talking just under $4,000 before you add in hard drives so that will allow you to back up from one device basically have you'll have mirror drobos apparently in that case so that's pretty much exactly what he said and uh he said money was no object i think everybody who says that actually means money up to a certain point is no object um so i don't know if that kind of exceeds uh exceeds that that setting so um well, I'm pretty sure the the remote backup capability is on some of the less expensive Drobo stuff. Um, okay. Sorry, now I'm pulling up like the Drobo website. Um, or maybe it's not. I could have sworn it was on. Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool feature. Protecting data offsite, easy to use data replication tool can back up your valuable data from one Drobo to another, somewhere on your network or across the internet to a remote site. Uh, it's included with the model B800FS. Protection offsite guards you from major disaster and gives you peace of mind. Of course. That's what we're all at. Everybody gives peace of mind. Um, oh, IX <laughs> yeah. Systems, by the way, is, is you know, we put in um, two racks um, and the mm-hmm. basically two stands, two rack manual stands, and I want to say these f- are fiber. There's like three trays that slide out these yep. Titan neck stands. Um, yeah, it's sixty disk RAID system. We're running like 180 terabytes <laughs> out of this. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just found the, pictures of it. That's impressive looking. It's uh, it's even more insane when you see you know your your IT Maven packing 
gigantic <laughs> rows of drives. Because essentially, like each of these three, you know, a tray comes out, and each tray has twenty drives inside of it. Um, I, 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 I bring that up, right? Because we've got some pretty insane, you know, we're a video company. We do like twenty applications sure. or twenty uh, shows a week, so we have our storage uh, needs are painful at best. Right. Um, but you know, man, 110 degrees, I, w- I would probably try to contact customer service and talk to them about best practices, uh, both at Drobo and Synology, mm-hmm. um, you know, and what they recommend. Cause you know, dust and computers and heat are three things that generally do not play nicely together. So figuring out a ways to filter the air coming into that room or, you know, building a room, you know, if you, you know, if money is no object, it's like, do you need to build a data closet with a, you know, AC or fans or man, you know, I, I, um, you know, but generally, you know, Go aim high. Uh, if rely, if you're if you're really serious about having huge amounts of data and huge amounts of reliability, probably spend yep. more than you want to. Um, it's uh, yeah. It sounds like he's pretty serious. You know, he's talking about backing up between two of these high end NASs and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I I agree. I think uh, contacting these guys directly is is probably a pretty good idea too. Ask the recommendations for 110 degree. Um, Outside temperatures, obviously, I don't think he meant 110 inside ambient, but either way, that's, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. well, you know, the other thing is, you know, if your AC system fails, your outside temperature very rapidly can become your inside temperature. <laughs> Especially Ask if you've got a lot of computers and uh, S boxes. <laughs> exactly. Man, yeah, actually, I've, I've, uh, I've been a big fan of Drobo, but I'm hearing a lot of good stuff about the Synology, and I'm really kind of looking forward to getting hands-on yep. with some of their gear. And, yep. hey, you know, you could always build an Unraid or a Freenas box. <laughs> That's true. I think that is it for Twitch this week in computer hardware. We have run out of questions. So I will ask you, gentle viewers, gentle listeners, send us a question, Twitch at twit.tv or send an email an email send a tweet to at ryan shrout or at patrick norton on the twitter dude what's coming up this week on pc per uh this week we are we're gonna gonna have several at least a couple of other z68 motherboards hopefully another storage article spending some more time on the uh, uh smart response technology what you get out of that and also, uh, we just finished testing a pair of Radeon HD 6870 cards from PowerColor that have six mini DisplayPort outputs on each card. Um, so it's it's kind of like the return of the Affinity Edition graphics card, but with the next generation of, of GPUs. So that's anytime I get to hook up the six monitor configuration in the office, I think that's a good day. So. <laughs> that's a very and uh, good how, about, day. how about on Techzilla? I know you said you guys had some some uh, Z68 and caching stuff planned on that too. We had Lloyd Case come on talking about what's going on with like Z68 and some of the other things. Uh, We explained FUBAR. We are a G show, so we have a G-rated explanation for FUBAR if you've got kids. Uh, (laughs) Why upload speeds are slower than download speeds. Uh, Robert Heron just got a big software upgrade for his CETON Infinity V4 and talks about the uh, Infinity V6, which is is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, CETON, if you don't know it, is a company that does cable card tuners for home theater PCs. And we've got uh, budget-friendly HDTVs. Heron did full reviews on HDTVs from Panasonic and Samsung that won't hurt your wallet. And I took one of my favorite questions, which is talking about the next generation 21 by 9 HDTVs, which if you are into the Blu-ray, is a really interesting concept. So if if you like movies... Feature movies taking up the entire screen. So I get excited. (laughs) I agreed. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to say that is it for this week in computer hardware. I'm Patrick Norton. And I'm Ryan Shrout. We'll see you next week on Twitch.